Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Acts chapter 17, starting with verse 16. I will continue to the end of the chapter at verse 34. We have, as the subject of our audio this time, Paul in Athens. He is on the Lamb from Berea, where the Jews from Thessalonica had come, the anti-Christian Jews from Thessalonica had come to Berea and essentially run Paul out of town. And Paul and the brother, the brethren in Berea had to get Paul out of town, either by the seacoast road to Athens or by a ship to Athens. And Paul is sitting in Athens waiting for Timothy and Silas, who was with him on the second journey there, to come see him in Athens so they continue with their so they can continue with their mission. Luke was also on this journey, but I think people speculate that he was he stayed behind in Philippi, so he's not involved now. So here's Paul. He's by himself. He's in Athens. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Timothy and Silas, coming to come from Berea, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. I read one speculation that he's, he's twiddling his thumbs waiting for Timothy and Silas. He looked around and saw all those idols. He just couldn't stand it. He had to go preach. But at any rate... Why was Athens so full of idols? Well, this Athens is the capital of idolatry. I mean, as the NIV Study Bible says, Athens was famous five centuries earlier for its art, philosophy, and literature. Of course, it's, I, in fact, I'm spending a lot of time right now reading about Athens and classical art, philosophy, and literature. That art, philosophy, and literature was so well known that it is still being studied in classics departments and universities all over the modern world. As NIV Study Bible says that Athens has retained her reputation throughout the years down to the present day. Athens had a leading university in Paul's day. I think the schools of Athens weren't shut down until the 6th century A.D. when Justinian, the Christian emperor, finally got fed up with them and shut the pagans down. But they had a huge influence in the world. And as I say, even to this day, they have a huge influence, even though people don't believe in their philosophy and religion anymore. When... Luke says that the city was full of idols. He is reflecting what others have said. Cicero, the famous Roman writer and philosopher, said said that Athens was full of temples, as John Gill points out. Xenophon, the famous writer and military guy who wrote Anabasis, the story of the 10,000 who came back from Persia to, to, to Athens. Xenophon said that Athens had double the pagan feast of other people. This is quote from John Gill, and Petronius, who was an Italian author, allegedly alleged to have written the Satyricon, said that Athens is so full of deities that it was easier to find a god there than a man. This is quoted by John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown. It's a great quote from Mr. Petronius. So Athens is the idolatrous city par excellence. Paul was walking through Athens. He didn't go through Athens like modern tourists do, like I have done in the last several years, trying to appreciate all the artwork. Oh, no. He was angry at all those idols. He didn't think they were beautiful at all. Acts 17, verse 17. So he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, of course, this is Paul's usual practice. He goes to the synagogue first and we can assume he went with the, to the synagogue first here. It's surprising that there were Jews in Athens because you tend to think of Athens as a Greek city par excellence full of a bunch of philosophers. But as John Gill points out, there were many Jews in Athens. And so Paul went to them first as was his want. And then he also went to the marketplace just to walk around and talk to anybody who happened to be there. Now, of course, in Athens, you can 
It's not hard to strike up a philosophical intellectual conversation in Athens. The marketplace is the famous Agora, A-G-O-R-A, the Agora, which is still there for tourists to walk through if you so desire. So desire. We go to Acts 17, verse 18. Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? This pinhead, this nerd. Others replied he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. First of all, they were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers arguing with Paul. Epicureanism and Stoicism were the two main philosophies of the ancient world and the ancient Hellenistic world. Hellenism being defined as that which came after Aristotle or maybe after Alexander the Great, approximately the same time. And that, of course, lasted all the way up into the Roman Empire. There were a lot of Stoics and Epicureans during the classical uh, Roman Empire times. So those philosophies lasted a long time along with Christianity, when Christianity came came to be. So let's look at some of the beliefs of the people who were debating with Paul. How about the Epicureans? They originally taught that the supreme good was the supreme good, the sumum bonum, if you will. The supreme good was happiness. We want to be happy. Now that's what they call, what they call it, eudaimonian ethics. But now they did believe that happiness could be found in temporary pleasure or gratification. And that's the way we use the word today. He's an Epicurean. He's a sybaritic leech, lech, who likes to get drunk and eat till his stomach is the size of a medicine ball and likes to have sex with anything that moves. No, that's not what the Epicureans were. They believed in happiness, which could be gotten through philosophy and art and good conversation and good manners and that kind of thing. But the NIV Study Bible says by the time Paul's time had come around, the Epicureanism of the original Epicureans had degenerated into a more sensual system of thought, kind of like what we believe today. That's according to the NIV Study Bible. Now, some of their other philosophical teachings were, the, and I'm going to contrast them with Christianity as we go through, the Epicureans believed that the world was not made by any deity. It was just here, eternal, I suppose. This, of course, contrasts with the doctrine, Christian doctrine of cre- creation ex nihilo. The Epicureans said there was no design, There was no intelligent design in the creation of the world. The world came into being fully by the chance concourse of atoms, the chance running together of atoms, which, of course, contradicts Christianity completely. It comports with the modern ridiculous theory of evolution, but it does not match Christianity. Epicureans also believe that the world is not governed by the providence of God. Now, the Stoics did not deny the existence of God. They did believe that God existed, but... The Stoics said that the world was so insignificant that God didn't even notice it. God kind of, that's worse than deist. <laughs> God made the world and the world just didn't amount to a hill of beans. So God just completely ignored the world. Very similar to the deist, I guess, the later deist. Well, of course, that contradicts Christianity because we know that God is extremely interested in the world and that he governs the affairs of the world by his providence and he cares about every little cork that's down here in this world. The Epicureans also believed that there were gods, plural. They were polytheists, but these gods, of course, had no interest in the world. Well, of course, that contradicts Christianity, which says there is one God and only one God. And last, the Epicureans believed that the soul was immortal. Well, here, here, they agreed with the Christians on that point. Now, how about the Stoics? They believed that people should live in accordance with nature. Kind of sounds like Chinese Taoist. 
The problem with that is, is yeah, if the way the world was originally created, it was created good, and we live according to the way the world was created, well, no problem with that. But the problem is, is that now nature is red with tooth and claw. We have sin in the world, and if the average person follows his nature, he will go out and fornicate and drink and smoke dope and do all that kind of stuff. And he says, well, I'm just living naturally, doing what comes naturally. So that halfway contradicts Christianity. The Stoics believe that people should recognize their independence and self-sufficiency, as the NIV Study Bible states it. Well, Christians are not independent. We're not self-sufficient. We live and move and have our being in God, not ourselves. The Stoics believe that people should suppress their desires. Well, that's partially true. From the Christian standpoint, we are supposed to suppress our sinful desires, but it's not true completely because there are a lot of desires that are perfectly legitimate. The desire to raise a family, the desire to love God, the desire to help your neighbor, the desire to keep yourself in physical shape, the desire to earn a living. There's all kind of good desires that we're not supposed to suppress, so the Stoics were awful in that also. The Stoics said that happiness lies in virtue. That's not too far off from the Christians. The Stoics said a wise man is devoid of passion. Well, I don't know. Was Jesus wise? Was he passionate when he ran the money changers and the sellers of animals outside of the temple? So I think they were kind of wrong on that. That's where we get the word Stoic from. Oh, he just looked at the nastiness in the world and stoically accepted it. Well, no, we're not supposed to stoically accept it. We're supposed to try to get rid of it the best way we can, which, of course, is through Christ and not through politics and not through psychology. The Stoics said all vices are equal. Oh, really? Shoplifting and murder are equal? I don't think so. The Stoics said the soul lives after the body. Well, we can agree with them on that. The Stoics said the world will be destroyed by fire. A lot of Christians think that. I don't because of a complicated theological reason, which I will not get into here. And the Stoics said there is but one God. Well, that, that agrees with, with the Christians. The Stoics said the world is not governed by that one God, but by fate. Mm, nope, that's not, that's not what Christians believe. God is not the prisoner of fate. fate. God predestines the history of the world, but he is not by the world predestined. We're not governed by fate, in other words. And the Stoics believed the soul was immortal like the Epicureans, and of course that believed, agreed with the Christians. Well, so as the NIV Study Bible summarizes all this, at its best, Stoicism had some admirable qualities, some ethical kind of qualities, but by the time of Paul's day, it had degenerated into a system of pride. Look at me. I can control my emotions. Look at me. Look at how ethical I am. Well, at any rate, we're going to see that Despite the differences between Epicureans and Stoics and the differences between Epicureans, Stoics, and Christianity, what the Epicureans and the Stoics totally agreed with each other on was there was no resurrection. So that's why we see here in verse 18, what is this pseudo-intellectual, King James has babbler, or the NIV has babbler, excuse me, what does this babbler trying to say? He's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. We don't believe in the resurrection, so automatically Paul has got opposition. Now, it's interesting, all the way through Acts, you see the resurrection is a central key point of the gospel witness. Over and over again do you see that. And once again, Paul didn't mince words. He went after these pagans on a point that they did not agree with. Now, we're going to see later, he did appeal to a lot of things that the pagans believed in order to try, as a good communication technique, to to make them listen to him. But he did not, he did not compromise on the truth of what he was trying to say. He was also very courteous too, as we'll see, but he still, 
he was not afraid of telling them what they did not want to hear, and they did not want to hear about the resurrection. Now, these Epicureans and Stoics accused Paul of being a preacher of foreign deities. Now, that was illegal. You couldn't bring foreign deities into a Roman province. That would cause disturbances, and the Romans didn't like disturbances. They liked peace, civil peace. So, hmm, this is kind of a serious charge against Paul. Some people speculate that when Paul was talking about Jesus and the resurrection, that when he used resurrection, he used the word Anastasia, the Greek word, and that was also a, a woman's name. And so it sounded like Paul was talking about a, a man and woman deity, a, a couple, if you will, Jesus and his bride Anastasia. So there's your foreign deity. Of course, Jesus would be foreign too anyway. So it's a serious charge. We see this Roman law that you're not supposed to introduce foreign deities, that was also in effect at Philippi when Paul was charged before the Philippian magistrates by the owner of the demonized slave girl who was making money for them by telling fortunes. Here's what the owners of that slave girl said to the magistrates. Paul and his apostles, fellow apostles, are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. So they use the same tact there. Now, when the Epicureans and Stoics in Athens complained about Paul introducing foreign deities, they used the word for deities, a Greek word, daimonion, daimonion, excuse me, daimonion. They didn't use theos, which is a god by nature. A daimonion is a man who was born a man but became deified later. So they probably saw Jesus as a deified man. They didn't understand what Paul was saying. No, Jesus is not a deified man. He was born the Son of God the minute he came out of the Virgin Mary's womb. All right, so in verse 19 in Acts 17, we read this. They, that's the Epicureans and Stoics, brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of. Now, let's talk about Areopagus. Areopagus means hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of thunder and war. The Roman name for that great god, by the way, was Mars, and that's where we get the KGV translation, Mars Hill. Areopagus is better because they weren't in Rome, they were in Greek, they would use the Greek name, Areopagus. Now, this Areopagus is not only the name of a hill, but it was the name of a court or a council, which is very old in uh, Greek in Athenian history, back during the Archaic Age. Archaic Age is about 800 to 500 B.C., and the Areopagus had been around for a long time. It used to meet on Mars Hill, on the Areopagus, the hill Areopagus. It used to meet there, and that's where it got its name, Areopagus. It used to actually govern Athens, but it lost its power. It ended up only having authority for treason, cases of treason or capital punishment. So it sort of became a court. But later on, sometime in its history, as the NIV Study Bible points out, the Areopagus court was moved from the hill the Areopagus Hill to the northwest corner of the Agora, the marketplace. So it was in the marketplace. And so now people don't know, the scholars don't know whether Paul was actually up on the hill or whether he was down there in the Agora making his argument, argument before the Areopagus. Adam Clark says the court was still being held on the hill. I know when I was in Athens and I saw the sign, Mars Hill, sign pointing to the steps, I said, hot dog, I'm going to walk up on the hill with Mar where Paul made his famous apologetic witness to the Athenians. But, you know, there's one thing I've learned. You can never trust tourist signs because places are always hungry for the tourist dollar, and they will tell you what you want to hear. Let me read what a commentator on the Internet I found out. This is from the moorings.org. forgot the brother's name that wrote this. He said this, 
Although church tradition has always preferred to picture Paul speaking on Mars Hill itself, scholars today agree that in Paul's time the court sometimes convened in the Stoa Basilios, the royal portico, in the northwest corner of the same agar where Paul had been preaching to passers-by. Yet the hill was still used for sessions of the court and other public gatherings. Therefore, the same scholars are not sure where Paul actually spoke. So he could have been up there on that hill. Now, I remember when I walked up on the hill, I was shocked at how narrow it was, how steep it was, and how easy it was to fall off the doggone thing and kill yourself. And it was windy, too. I thought, how in the world could people meet up here in the, on the hill? Did they have a booth or some kind of building, or did they meet in the open? I don't know. But anyway, it's an interesting tourist type of point. It doesn't really matter as far as what Paul said. Now, by the time that Paul spoke, as I mentioned, the Areopagus had lost its ruling functions, and now and it, it had some judicial functions uh, later on in Athenian history. I don't know by the time of Paul whether they were still judging capital crimes and cases of treason. I don't know that, but the NIV Study Bible says they were in charge of religion and morals, and of course Paul is preaching a new god, a foreign god. So that's religion and morals, so that's the natural place for Paul to be taken. Now, Adam Clark said the Areopagus was one of the most sacred and reputable courts that ever existed in the Gentile world. Justice that could be found there was strict, and it was impartial. Ooh, that's nice. They, the Areopagus deliberated at night so they would not be distracted. They deliberated at night so they could not see the defendants who might excite pity or aversion, thus to keep themselves objective. The plaintiff and defendant who came before the Areopagus had to take a horrible imprecatory oath in the presence of bleeding sacrifices, they swore by the Furies, may I be punished forever in the underworld with these nasty, demonic-like, Beelzebub-looking demon gods or goddesses chasing me all through the underworld for the rest of my life if I tell a lie in this court. So, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown said, there is no place in Athens so suitable for a discourse on the mysteries of religion. Ellicott, the commentator, describes the court this way, quote, the court sat in the open air on benches, forming three sides of a quadrangle. Well, there's my answer to my question about did they have a building or were they in the open air? If they were up on that mountain, they were in the open air. A short flight of 16 steps cut in the rock led from the agora to the plateau where the court held its sittings. It, if it was actually sitting at the time, at the time that Paul came before it, the temptation to have recourse to it, if only to cause a sensation and terrify the strange disputant, may well have been irresistible. As the apostle stood there, he looked from the slight elevation on the temple of the Eumenides below him, that of Theseus to the east, and facing him on the Acropolis, the Parthenon. I, I can see that because you can do, it's real easy to see. Mars Hill is up and the Parthenon is, I don't know, it's across a valley. It's not that far. It's very, it's easy, it's easy to see it. On the height of that hill stood the colossal bronze statue of, of Athena as the tutelary goddess of her beloved Athens. Below and all around him were statues and altars. The city was very full of idols. So let's just assume that Paul was on the hill here. Again, we can't really assume that. But if he was, this is what he's looking at. He's in a very august and severe and impartial court, having a panoramic, panoramic view of Athens. I can see it in my mind's eye right now. You can see all over Athens. You can look down in the agora, as a matter of fact. John Gill says that it might not be either the hill or the the Agora, where the Areopagus met, but there might have been a street named Areopagus in Athens where Paul went to. I don't, I don't hear too many people arguing for that. But at any rate, this appearance before the Areopagus gave Paul a chance to give a systematic defense rather than 
having to give fragmented conversations in the street to passersby. Now, there is a dispute as to whether the court was actually in session or whether it was just some philosophers on the hill up there in Areopagus. In other words, it was not the famous Areopagus Council, but it was they were up on the hill, the place, the geographical place, Areopagus, where Paul continued his evangelism. He was not before the court, Areopagus. Jameson Fawcett Brown holds the opinion that Paul was not on trial. He was just up there to expound. He was up there on the hill to expound what he had said into the agra, so he was just continuing informal conversations. But Adam Clark says that Paul was actually before the court of the Areopagus. We go to verse 20 in Acts 17. For which you say, this is the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers talking to Paul, for what you, Paul, say sounds strange to us, Epicureans and Stoics, and we want to know what these ideas mean. Well, that's very polite. And they invite him to go before, up on the hill to talk. I think he, was, he went actually before the court, because why would they... Why would the Stoics and Epicureans ask Paul just to go to talk to some more philosophers informally? It sounds to me like they're inviting him to a formal session of the court, and they want to know, they want to hear Paul's ideas cross-examined to see if they can stand up. Now, notice the Epicureans and the Stoics said that Paul's ideas sounded strange to them. Adam Clark makes the perceptive point that this shows the absolutely unique nature of Christianity, that of Christianity. The pagans had never heard anything like this before, and it was strange to them. Talking about resurrection of the dead? Acts 17, verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. <laughs> there were foreigners there. John Gill and James and Fawcett and Brown say these foreigners were people from all over who came to get their philosophical kicks in Athens. Now, that wouldn't surprise me. You know, even the 20th century philosopher Alfred North Whitehead said that all philosophy is a footnote to Plato, the Athenian Plato. I mean, you know, you want to go to, you go to Nashville for country music, you go to Athens for philosophy. That's just the way it was. And they were wanting to hear, tell or hear something new, which shows that one philosophy couldn't maintain the course, couldn't maintain the, the fortress had to give up when the new idea came along and a new idea came along. So they were just bouncing from one idea to the next. This reminds me of something I forgot to mention when I was going over verse 18. The Epicureans and Stoics called Paul a pseudo-intellectual, according to my Holman Christian Study Bible translation. The NIV says a babbler. The Greek word is spermalagos, spermalagos, which means a seed picker, like a bird picking up seeds here and there. And the idea is... They're loafers in the marketplace. They pick up a scrap of learning here, and they pick up a scrap of learning there. They paraded around with the scraps of learning that they had picked up, but they never digested them into a coherent whole. Adam Clark says that word, spermalagos, babbler, pseudo-intellectual, means a prating, empty, impertinent person. So when we read in verse 21 that the Athenians and the foreigners spent their time on nothing else, not in productive labor, Oh, nothing else but telling or hearing something new. That sounds like they're a bunch of spermologoi, a bunch of seed pickers. Picking up an idea here, picking up an idea there. Oh, here's a new idea. I think I'll look at that for a while. We go to verse 22 of Acts 17. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus, that's either the hill or the council, I assume it's the council, and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. 
Now, that word religious, as the NIV Study Bible notes, could either be used positively or negatively. It could be used for praise or for, cri- for criticism. And the Athenians would not know which way the word, Paul, which way Paul was using the word until Paul continued. As time went on, it became very clear that Paul was trying to be complimentary in order to gain a hearing. The NIV Study Bible and John Gill point that out. Paul was very courteous throughout this whole incident of evangelism, which, of course, we should be. The negative connotation of religious is superstitious. Oh, so it would be like this. Paul would be saying, men of Athens, I see that you are extremely superstitious in every respect. He'd be starting out in sort of a negative way. But no, he didn't start. That's not what he meant. Adam Clark points out in the argument that follows, Paul not once tried to move the passions of the audience. He used plain and grave reasonings. And I say this, that Paul is arguing like a philosopher, not a sophist. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Acts 17.23, Paul continues, For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance... This I proclaim to you. And the reason he said that they were ignorant, he wasn't trying to be pejorative, is because when you say an unknown God, that means you're ignorant. You don't know who the God is. Now, the Greeks were fearful of offending any God by failing to give him attention. They, had, they were polytheists. There were a bunch of gods up there. And if you read Greek mythology or Greek history, you will see that the Greeks were scared to death of the gods. The gods demanded things of them. We want sacrifices. We want sacrifices. And the the average Greek had an idea of a God who could do you harm if you didn't placate him, appease him, propitiate him. So they would do that. They would offer sacrifices to the gods they knew, but then they thought, well, what if it's a God that's causing my crop to fail? What if it's a God I've never heard of of before? Well, I better placate him too. So they would set up an altar to an unknown God. And other Greek writers, and there are many Greek writers who attest that there were inscriptions like that all over Athens. The NIV Study Bible, John Gill and Adam Clark all say that. So this was apparently not just a one, one-off deal, a one-off altar. There were a bunch of them in Athens. And so Paul wants to use that as a point of contact so he can talk to his audience, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Now, by appealing to this unknown God... Paul is avoiding the law that forbade the introduction of new gods into the area. Remember back in verse 18, he was accused of this by the Epicureans and the Stoics. What does this babbler say? He seems to be a setter forth of strange gods. Strange foreign gods? That's trouble. That's illegal. And one of my commentators point out the penalty for doing that was execution. That introducing foreign gods was a capital offense. Paul avoids that. We go to verse 24 in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. So Paul starts out by saying God is a creator God. This was in contrast to the materialist Epicureans who believed that they were atomists. They believed that everything was atoms, material. They they were materialists. They didn't believe there was anything spiritual. They said the world was made by chance. So here Paul is saying no a personal God made the world. The world didn't just come, you know, just didn't exist eternally by chance. God made the world as a purpose. There's providence in the world, and he was a personal creator. So he, by saying he was a creator, that contrasted the materialistic Epicureans who said the world was made by chance. When he, but when, and when Paul said that he was a personal, he didn't directly say he was a personal creator, but it's apparent that he meant, meant that. He was the God who made the world, which means he was a personal creator. 
which is in contrast to the pantheistic Stoics. The Stoics thought the world was God. Paul says, no, the world was made by God. God is distinct from the world. There is a creator-creation distinction, a creator-creature distinction, which the pantheist, which the Stoics who were pantheists would not acknowledge. So right then, from the very beginning, he's already mentioned resurrection before in the streets, and now before the Areopagus, he mentions creation ex nihilo by a personal God. This is the basics of the Christian faith, of course, and the Greeks did believe in that. That was alien to them. And notice that Paul says that this God does not live in shrines made by hands. Of course, he's referring to the Athenians who had shrines everywhere, all over the place. Temples, 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 temples. They're still there. You can go on tourist trips and see all their temples and shrines. And Paul says, God, God doesn't need these silly, stupid stone houses to live in. And, of course, that greatly contrasted with the Athenian views. All right, so already Paul has poked him in the eye about resurrection. He's poked him in the eye about pantheism. And he's poked him in the idea about a personal God as opposed to an impersonal God. And now he's poking them in the eye about the idolatry. So he's going after the idolatry and after their philosophy because the Athenians were famous for those two things, idolatry and philosophy. Paul, he was courteous, but he did not mince his words. He told them the truth. That's a good application point today as we're facing a very hostile anti-Christian culture here in America. We've got to tell them the truth while we're courteous doing it. Now, notice Paul said that God does not live in shrines made by hands. I think that's a good verse maybe for American Christians who worship their church builders and think that their, their religion, their relationship with God seems to 90% depend upon how fancy their church building is. No, God doesn't live in a church building. He lives in his church, the people, but not the building. Acts 17.25, Paul continues before the Areopagus. Neither is he, God, served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. God doesn't need anything. That's what the theologians call a seity, A-S-E-I-T-I. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need his creatures. He doesn't need anything we can give him. If you read Greek mythology, which unfortunately I've spent some time just recently doing, the Greek gods needed those sacrifices, and they were real upset when they didn't get them. They had to have them. God's not like that. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need to be served by human hands. But on the other hand, God doesn't need anything, but his creatures do. Paul says, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things, if you want to have life, if you want to have breath, and if you want to have all things that you need to live, like your food and your shelter, God gives that to you. So when Paul says, neither is God served by human hands, he's make taking an indirect slap at Athenian idols because all of their idols were made by human hands, which automatically shows they're inferior to the God that Paul preached. Jameson, Foster, and Brown say this, He who gives life to everyone certainly doesn't need anything from the recipients. The giver of all cannot be dependent upon the receivers of all. That's a good verse for the doctrine of aseity. We go to verse 26 in Acts 17. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. So Paul continues his apologetic message to the Areopagus. He says, from one man God has made every nationality. That one man, of course, would be Adam. And every nationality on the world came from that. Nationality sounds like a political word. It's not. It's people group, ethnic group, every tribe, if you will. The nation-state idea is a relatively modern concept. It, it was not even in existence. Really, it, uh, it, There was the idea of tribe and there was the idea of empire, but not nation back then at Paul's times. So I don't think that's a good translation in my humble opinion. But at any rate, 
the idea is God has made every people group to live over the whole earth and to determine their appointed times. That means when they come into existence and when they go out of existence and the boundaries of where they live. So notice the providence of God. People might choose to to migrate to where they live, but God's providential hand is over it all, and he determines how long the Hittites are going to last and how long the Jebusites are going to be in Jerusalem and so forth. Paul seems to be quoting Deuteronomy 32.8 when he says this. Deuteronomy 32.8, Moses says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided the human race, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the people of Israel, or the sons of God, number of the sons of God, as the ESV says. I'm not, I don't know what the last part of that verse means, but the first part says that the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided the human race. So God is in charge of all this. It didn't happen by random chance, like the Athenian philosophers, like like the Epicureans uh, like to say. It didn't happen by random chance. God decided who was going to live where. And there you have a classic philosophical clash between, like in modern times, we have Calvinists and Augustinians who say God's in charge of the world and its fate and its history, and you have evolutionists and atheists who say, no, we are, or it's just random chance as to what's happened. Job had the same idea that God had, that Paul had here in Job 12, verse 23, Job says this, he, God, makes nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges nations, then leads them away. God's in control of nations. He's in control of the United States of America, what's left of it. In this verse, when Paul says, from one man God made every nationality, every people group, the Holman Christian Study Bible has a note that says that some manuscripts have one blood. From one blood, God has made every nationality. I don't know. That sounds like one man to me. Now, what Paul is doing here when he says, from one man God made every nationality, in other words, God created that first man, what he's doing is he's mocking this foolish idea the Athenians had, a very proud and arrogant idea the Athenians had that they were octophonous. Adam Clark says that the Athenians thought they were self-produced, that they were the aboriginals of mankind that just sprang into being. Well, I just happened to read the myth of how Athens was started yesterday, listening to a podcast on, Athene on uh, Athenian history. Here's the story. Poseidon, the sea god, made Hephaestus, that's the blacksmith god, Poseidon, for a prank, made Hephaestus lusty. Hephaestus, the Roman Vulcan, was not normally lusty, but he was because of what Poseidon did to him. So Hephaestus pursued the virgin Athena. Athena wants to preserve her virginity, so she runs. Hephaestus catches up with her. Hephaestus and Athena struggle, and he tries to rape her. Amidst the failed rape, Hephaestus' sperm falls on Athena's leg. In disgust, Athena wipes off the sperm, throws it to the ground. When the sperm hit the ground, the Athenians sprang up. Oh, what a marvelous tale. I think I like Genesis 1 and 2 a lot better for where mankind came from. Pagan copies of the truth are usually not nearly as impressive. All right, when Paul says in this verse, in verse 26, that God appointed, he has determined their appointed times. This shows that God is sovereign over all of human history. He talks about making man determine their appointed times, and he determined when those appointed times were. This contradicted both the Epicureans and the Stoics. I've already mentioned this. It contradicts the Epicureans, who says that the world was governed by chance, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. 
The Epicureans said the world was not made by any deity with any design. But Paul is saying, yes, God designed the world and the nations of the world. How did Paul contradict the Stoics? The Stoics says that the world was not governed by one God. The world was governed by fate. But here we see God is the, determining the course of the world, not fate. All right, so Paul's giving it to them. We go to verse 27 in Acts 17. He, God, did this so they might seek God, the they being the every nation on the earth. He did this. He, he, he put them out there. He, he appointed their times and their boundaries so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. So here Paul is appealing to natural revelation, which we see in Romans 1, 19 through 20. For what can, Paul says this in his letter to the Romans, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So there Paul says that people can see that at least God exists. They might not know. They know some of his invisible attributes, his power and divine nature and so forth. They don't know him as a person. They don't know him as somebody they can relate to and, and communicate with, but at least they know he's out there somehow. I talked to somebody recently who was into, uh, he wasn't quite into Satan worship, but he loved Satan. He loved demonic rap music and he hated God. And he said that even in the midst of that, he would look up and say, yeah, I know you're out there. I know you created the world, but I hate you anyway, which I thought was an amazing, amazing thing for somebody to hate God, but at least, but at the same time, admit that he was there. That word reach out, by the way, the Greek means to grope after, as a person does who is blindfolded or blind or in the dark, as John Gill, Adam Clark, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say that word should be translated or should be interpreted. And Adam Clark makes the point that this shows that natural revelation is not as good as special revelation. The natural revelation we get from nature is not as good as the special revelation we get from the scripture and from the events of the new covenant, which Paul is about to give to them. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that this verse, this reaching out, this groping after the truth that Paul says that people do, this verse is a, quote, lively picture of the murky atmosphere of natural religion. And I really think that's true. I mean, people know that there's a God, but they don't know much more than that. Now, this God, Paul says, is not far out from each one of us. Yes, sir, that's true. He's as close as a confession of sin. That's how close he is. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say the reason men don't find God is not God's distance. But rather, men, the reason men don't find God is the blinding effect of man's sin. I will point out here, this seems to me to be an appeal to natural religion that God laid out the, the boundaries of the earth, of the peoples and so forth. It sounds like an appeal to natural to what's out there so the people can reason their way to God. And a lot of apologetic Christian apologists get mad. A lot of the classical apologists say, see there, this is classical apologetics. And the presuppositions say, no, 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 it's not classical apologetics. And there have been whole tomes written on this subject. I don't really understand the issues yet, but it does seem to me when I read Romans 1, 19 through 20, that there is some knowledge of God that's available through nature. We go now to Acts 17, 28. Paul continues to the Areopagus. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Paul is quoting several pagan Greek poets here, trying to get a point of contact with his pagan audience. The first half of the verse, in him we live and move and have our being. 
That is a quotation from Epimenides. 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 As the NIV study Bible points out, he was a Cretan poet, lived about 600 or so B.C. in a work called the Credica. In the second part of the verse, Paul says, some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So Paul quotes two poets here, Cleanthes, 331 to 233 B.C. He taught at Athens. He wrote a poem called Hymn to Zeus. And there was also Aratus, who was a Cilician poet. And, of course, Paul was from Cilicia. Cilicia. He was from Tarsus, which was the capital of Cilicia, the, the Roman province there. So Paul was probably very familiar with Aratus. So Paul knew some pagan poetry. He, he, was, he, was, he knew a lot of Jewish theology, and he knew a lot of pagan stuff, too. He used whatever he had to try to, to win people. To the Jew, he became as a Jew. To the Greeks, he became as a Greek. So he's quoting Greek poets to them. For in him we live and move and exist. That shows that God is in charge of the world and that we are dependent upon him. The gods are not dependent on us. And that we are his offspring, that means we just didn't we're not we just didn't exist here randomly. We actually came from him. So what Paul is doing is quoting pagans to contradict pagan he's quoting pagan poets to contradict pagan philosophy. Paul does that elsewhere by the elsewhere by the way in 1 Corinthians 15:33. He quotes a pagan Greek poet, Do not be deceived, quote, Bad company corrupts good morals. In Titus 1.12, Paul tells this to Titus. One, Titus, one of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So he's quoting a poet there, quite politically incorrect. He retweeted what some other poet had said, and I'm sure some of the people in today's lynch, Twitter lynch mob would accuse him of being insensitive. So what Paul is doing here, as I said, he's using a good communication technique to appeal to things the listener is familiar with. Now, when Paul says, in him we live and move and exist, this contradicts the fatalism of the Stoics, because God is in charge of how we live and move and, and exist. God does not fate. And he also contradicts the random chance theory of the Epicureans, saying that things are just by chance. No, in God there is no chance. We're in God. Verse 29 of Acts 17, Paul continues. Being God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an, imaged, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. So now Paul is not only fighting Epicureanism and Stoicism, he's also fighting idolatry. He fights Greek philosophy, he fights Greek idolatry. When he, and when Paul says being God's offspring, of course, he means not spiritual offspring, because all of us are not God's spiritual offspring. Only Christians are, but everybody is God's created offspring. Notice how polite Paul is. Being God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think. He didn't say, how stupid it is for you to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. How ridiculous, how arrogant. You human scum, to quote a certain president I am familiar with, who says that of his political opponents. Paul didn't operate that way. He was very nice to the people he was trying to convert. Jameson Fawcett Brown says that the courtesy of Paul's language is worthy of notice. And I say that Paul zinged their false beliefs without compromise, but he did it courteously. We go to verse 30, Acts 17, Paul continues, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. So we've already, he's already got resurrection in his gospel message, and now he's talking about repentance. That's the guts of the gospel. How did God overlook the times of ignorance? Well, there's a couple of opinions on that. John Gill and Adam Clark say that God overlooked the times of ignorance by not giving them revelation and prophets. 
Here's a quote from Gill, quote, Displeased and angry with them, and as an evidence of such contempt and indignation, he overlooked them and took no notice of them and gave them no revelation to direct them, nor prophets to instruct them, and left them to their stupidity and ignorance. I don't think so. I think Jameson Fawcett Brown is correct on this. He says that God overlooked these pagans. He overlooked giving them judgment. He didn't judge them when he could have. But the implication is you better repent. Now God now commands all people everywhere to repent. You better repent or there is going to be judgment coming. Verse 31, Acts 17, because, Paul continues, he, God, has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. Now, now he's really getting into stuff the Greeks won't like about this. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. I've already said they don't like resurrection. None of them believe that. And judging the world. Now, this idea of judging the world is everywhere. Let's look at some scriptures, Acts 10, 42. He, God, commanded us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Who? God, Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his on the throne of his glory, he, Jesus. John five twenty two through 23. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John five twenty five. I assure you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. John five twenty seven. And he has granted him the right and he, the Father, has granted him, the Son, the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. So obviously, Jesus is going to judge. Now, that's something we don't hear about too much in today's namby-pamby, wussy-pussy evangelical world. But Jesus is going to judge the world in righteousness. He's going to establish the right and get rid of the evil. He has set a day or a time when that's going to happen. So I don't know when that is, but it's going to happen. No human being knows when it is. Now, how does raising Jesus from the dead by God, how does that provide proof of the final judgment in the world? It doesn't. The connection is not obvious. In the last part of the verse, 31, we read, He, God, has provided proof of this, of what? Judging the world in righteousness. He has provided proof of this judgment of the world in righteousness to everyone by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. Well, it's because when somebody rises from the dead, you listen to him. You say, well, if he can rise from the dead, by golly, nobody else has ever been able to do that. So maybe we better listen to what he says. And one of the things he says is he's going to judge the living and the dead. As the, as the creeds all say, he is coming to judge the living and the dead. This idea of resurrection, as I said, it's everywhere in the Gospels, in the, in the book of Acts, in the evangelistic message of the apostles. They always mentioned, they all the time mentioned resurrection. It, it was the key focal point of their of their message once you believe in the resurrection you'll believe in a lot of other good stuff too in fact that's how i believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures that liberals are constantly harping about is because hey if jesus rose again from the dead he says the scripture does not be broken i'll listen to somebody who was raised from the dead the resurrection is the, is the center of everything your apologetics your witness your belief in the scripture everything one last point in verse 31 we see that Jesus is doing all this judge, judging of the world in righteousness. This leads some people to say that that famous great white throne judgment at the end of time, at the end of Revelation, is Jesus sitting on that throne, the Son, not the Father. Well, I, that's deep theology for me. I don't know what the answer is to that, but I just mentioned it. We go to Acts 17, verses 32 through 33. 
when they, that's the Areopagus or the people on the Areopagus Hill, whichever way you want to take it, when they heard about resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. They don't like that. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. Then Paul left their presence. Now, as I, as the NIV study Bible points out, the Greeks accepted immortality of the soul. Both the Epicureans and the Stoics believed in, in the immortality of the soul. Plato did too, for that matter. But they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. This was true of the Epicureans, the Stoics, all sects of Greek life. None of them believed in the resurrection of the dead. Here's what Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says about that. As the Greek religion was but the glorification of the present life by the worship of all its most beauteous forms, the resurrection, which presupposes the vanity of the present life and is nothing but life out of the death of all that sin is blighted, could have no charm for the true Greek. Those were this worldly people. This is all we got. Their idea of the Hades, the afterlife, was it was dark and shadowy and you didn't recognize anybody. It was disgusting. It was horrible. Every now and then you could drink some sacrificial blood. Maybe you can recognize somebody for a day or two. Then you go right back to ignorance. The famous Greek poet Aeschylus in his famous play, Eumenides, says this, quote, When the dust has soaked up a man's blood, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. And, you, and ironically, Aeschylus made that statement to the Areopagus, to the council. The very same council, the very same Areopagus that Paul, to whom Paul was now speaking. So there was nothing more deeply ingrained in Greek culture than the idea that there's no resurrection of the dead. So it's not surprising that some people began to ridicule Paul. But others said, we'd like to hear you again from this, uh, hear again from you about this. Now, some people say they're just being polite. Some people say that, no, they have no intention of listening again. Well, if they were just being polite, that means that they are just saying that to be polite, but they have no real intention of hearing Paul again speak about the resurrection of the dead. Others say that no, they sincerely wanted to hear him talk some more about the resurrection of the dead. That doesn't surprise me. The gospel message has different kinds of reactions. The same message will produce ridicule. It'll produce belief. It'll produce curiosity. All kinds of ways people react when they hear the truth. Verse 33, when it says Paul left their presence, the NIV translates it as the council. He left the council, so he left. He, he left the meeting. We're assuming. I'm assuming that it was an actual meeting, a formal meeting of the Areopagus, wherever it was. It was not just a random collection of philosophers he was talking to. Now, when Paul left, this was probably earlier than he had intended. The assembly broke up upon mention of the resurrection of the body. As Adam Clark said, and Paul had no doubt intended to continue with the doctrines of salvation, but he got interrupted. But Jameson, Foster, and Brown say that maybe not. Maybe that Paul had reserved his salvation message on purpose for later earnest inquirers, the ones who said we'd like to hear some more. Maybe he was just waiting to tell them about it when he had a better chance. Hard to say. I suspect he had to leave because of all the mocking, and he, he wanted to get the sincere seekers alone so he could talk to them. Let's briefly revisit this idea of whether this was an actual talking to the Areopagus in the sense of a trial. Should we let this guy continue to preach or not? A hearing, let's put it that way. Adam Clark says that it was an actual trial. He said he could have satisfied, Paul could have satisfied all their curiosity about the resurrection and so forth in the marketplace. He didn't have to go to the Areopagus to do that. So the reason he was in the Areopagus is because they were taking him to see if he could get legal sanction, not just to talk about philosophy. He was doing that already in the marketplace. I think Clark's right about that. I think it was an actual trial or, or a hearing. Clark also points out in verse 19, it says when he, they took him, let me look at verse 19 here. 
they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, the Epicureans and the Stoics. They they took him should be translated at, according to Adam Clark as they laid hold of him. They grabbed him, dragged him before the Areopagus. Well, maybe I'm not sure that's a good translation, but that's the idea. I think it was a it was a true meeting of the council here. All right, so Paul left, and this is the end of the ch- almost at the end of the chapter. There's no letter written to a church at Athens. There's no cha- Athens is never mentioned again in the scriptures. There's no church there, and there's no mention that Paul's ever again in Athens. So that's it for Athens. Now, let's ask a question here. Did the fact that Paul was ridiculed does that mean that Paul missed the guidance of the Holy Spirit in going to the Areopagus to the council? I don't think so. Others were obviously interested. It says some others wanted to know about the resurrection of the dead. We'd like to hear from you again about this. In verse 32, well, he got a chance to preach the gospel. So why did why did he miss the Holy Spirit by going to the Areopagus? Now, as I mentioned that others were obviously interested. We want to hear some more about this, but that's disputable too because Jameson Fawcett Brown says, no, they're just being polite. Quote, it was an idle compliment to Paul and an opiate to their consciences, such as we often meet with in our own day. They, probably like Felix, feared to hear more, lest they should be constrained to believe unwelcome truths. So they weren't really interested in hearing any more. Well, if they weren't, then that means, well, did Paul miss the Holy Spirit? You can't say that. I would never tell somebody. I mean, you just don't know. You get one. He got two people converted. You never know. Those two people might have converted all of Greece after Paul left and just wasn't written down. We go down to verse 34 and we finish up Acts chapter 17. However, some men joined him, joined Paul, and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So I said, I think I earlier said there were two converts. There were at least two, these two, two named converts, and there were others that are unnamed. So no, I don't think, I don't think you should measure success by how many people got saved. If one person gets saved and avoids hell, to me that's a great victory. I'm not going to criticize Paul for missing the Holy Spirit. Now, this Dionysus the Areopagite has become famous for a strange reason. There was a later tradition, which is unprovable, that he became Bishop of Athens. But even more than that, which made him famous, was that there there was a, a famous medieval theologian and philosopher who called himself Dionysius the Areopagite, claiming that he was writing as Dionysus the Areopagite when he really wasn't. He used Dionysus the Areopagite as a pen name. It's a, I guess you could say it's a fraud. I don't know. But at any rate, everybody believed it. All the philosophers, I think even Thomas Aquinas quoted him as Dionysus the Areopagite. I forgot, but he's mentioned all the time. Now, modern people call him pseudo-Dionysius because he wasn't really Dionysius the Areopagite. That's kind of an interesting historical fact. Adam Clark says that the real Dionysius the Areopagite here became was one of the judges of the council. So if that's the case, then that means Paul got an important convert. He converted somebody right at the top of Athenian society. The woman Damaris, we don't know any more about her. Now let's look again at this question about whether Paul failed at Athens. Whether he missed the Holy Spirit is the way I put it before. But let's just let's just phrase it this way. Did Paul fail when he went to Athens? People argue with this. Here's the argument that Paul did fail. Paul never appealed to intellectual arguments again. He never quoted pagans, philosophers, and tried to use philosophical arguments as a contrast to the Christian faith. So therefore, if he didn't use it again, that must mean he failed. Well, the answer, let me just insert here a response to that. Well, it could be he wasn't preaching in Athens anymore. Athens was a special case. 
Maybe if he'd have gone down to Alexandria, he might have used the same arguments again. So I don't think that proves that Paul failed. Second argument that Paul failed, he only won a few converts. Well, one of them might have been a member of the council, and how important is an individual soul? Damaris was sold, and some others got saved besides, and you don't know whether they went out and converted all of Greece and Macedonia and Thessaly, and who knows? Third argument, Paul never established a church there. Well, there were, he didn't establish a church in Amphipolis either. He didn't establish a church in Apollonia either. There were lots of places that Paul traveled through never established a church. That doesn't mean he was a failure. Maybe one of his converts later established a church there, although we don't hear about it. I realize that's an argument from silence, but it's very possible. All right, here's some arguments that Paul did not fail. Argument number one, Paul had no plan to stay extensively in Athens. He wasn't even planning to start a church in Athens. He was forced to go there to escape persecution in Berea. Berea, you remember, he was the Jews from Thessalonica, the anti-Christian Jews from Thessalonica, came down to Berea, started got, got everybody, all their panties in a wad, started some civil commotion and Paul had to leave town and so he secretly by night went to Athens and he he told his escort to go back to Berea and tell Timothy and Silas to come back to Athens and meet him and so he was just in Athens waiting for Timothy and Silas he wasn't there planning to start a church so you can't say he failed to do something that he never intended to do another argument that Paul did not fail is because is the Areopagus shut him up as soon as he mentioned the resurrection of the dead. Are we going to say an evangelist fails when he gets persecuted and has to leave? Well, I guess he failed at Berea, too. How about at Lystra? He was persecuted constantly. That doesn't mean he was a failure. Third argument, the Areopagus legally prohibited Paul from further teaching. So how can you say Paul failed when he could not go out and preach the gospel anymore? Now, this assumes Paul was before the council legally and formally, which I do assume. I know it's disputed, but I assume it. The Areopagus never gave Paul sanction to go out and teach the gospel. It broke up. Remember, they started ridiculing him about the resurrection of the dead. So maybe Paul, just like at Berea, was prohibited by persecution from preaching the gospel. That doesn't mean he's a failure. And fourth argument that Paul did not fail. Dionysius, the Areopagite, and Damaris, they believed in Jesus. They're in heaven now. That's a failure. And there's some others that were mentioned too. That's, those are failures? I don't think so. Folks, we are finished with Acts chapter 17. We will continue with Acts 18 in our next audio, in which we will examine Paul's trip to Corinth. I hope you stay tuned for that one. I hope you enjoyed this audio.